0: Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin platform at Ms. Magazine and Ms. Studios. As you know, on all of our shows, we report, rebel, and we tell it just like it is. We dive right in and we do it in feminist terms. That's how we count. Today, I'm joined by Professor Wendy Mink, author of Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Takamoto Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress. Now, Professor Mink, who joins me today, grew up in Hawaii and on the East Coast, where she was able to watch up close her mother, Patsy Takemoto Mink, as she defied all odds in many ways, being the first woman of color in Congress and shepherding through in the 1960s, some of the most pivotal civil liberties and civil rights legislation that would affect the entirety of our nation. Wendy, it's such a pleasure to be with you on this episode as we are recognizing Title IX at 50 and your newly published book, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Takamoto Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress. Uh, I want to hear from you about your experience in writing that book, which pays such a beautiful homage to your mother.
1: Well, um, the overwhelming memory of writing the book is that it took a long time. (laughs) Um, I spent maybe uh, five years um, puttering around the Library of Congress, her collection of papers that are uh, in residence there before uh, encountering the person who would become my co-author, Judy Tsuchan Wu, uh, who is a historian Um, And then another 10 years, once we connected and realized that we had intellectual relationships that could be um, uh, mined for developing a a sort of multi-voice kind of uh, telling of my mother's story. So uh, she and I worked for 10 years. I worked for, I don't know, four or five years before that um, to sort of figure out how I would tell her story before we actually embarked.
0: Well, it's a powerful story because she was the first woman of color elected to Congress and participated in the passage of so much of that landmark legislation that we saw in the 1960s and going forward. Could you share a bit about that part of the story with us? And then I'd like to turn to the more personal side as well.
1: Well, um... Coming to Congress in the mid 1960s was um, sort of both thrilling and also incredibly, um, uh, I don't know what quite the word is. It was, it was thrilling and it was also sort of um, awe inspiring in terms of the kinds of questions that needed to be decided. Um, she was elected in 1964, took office in January of 1965. Her first vote as a member of Congress was against seating the all-white Mississippi delegation that had been elected in an all-white electoral process. Wait, so I've just was, gotten you know, was, chills
0: from that alone, Wendy. Yeah. And just the experience of coming from Hawaii yourself, and then the first vote being that and understanding what it means when there's an all-white monopoly on power that usurps the voices of people of color. And it also gives me chills, too, given the position that your mother had as the first woman of color in Congress and given the role of Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi in fighting against that. Oh, my gosh, I just got chills.
1: Yeah, now, as we were living it, as she was living the decision-making about how to participate in the protest the parliamentary protest and the street level protest you know we didn't have the the benefit of retrospective right I mean it, it's it's an incredibly um, chicken skin kind of thing to remember from from the vantage point of 2022 I think living it at the time it was like this is part of the struggle this is part of what we have to do to take the next step that that sort of Uh, There was a certain kind of dailiness to the struggle for civil rights when you were in the midst of um, in the midst of the struggle, whether you were, you know, on the grassroots level or in the legislative process or in the courts or wherever you were.
0: I really appreciate your mentioning the dailiness of it, because I think that it's possible for people to not understand that it is a dailiness when you're thinking about being disinvested from civil liberties and civil rights. It doesn't just affect one aspect of a person's life. And when you are in the process of bringing attention to the pain and the suffering that occurs when your constitutional rights are denied, that too is a daily affair. It's not just one thing. It's a a full-scale aspect. How did your mother hold up in those times? I mean, it's not as if, I'm sure, it's not as if the red carpet was rolled out, not that it is for anybody. Well, maybe for some that it is, but I'm sure certainly for her there were a number of barriers to overcome while at the same time she's rolling up her sleeves and involved and invested in the pivotal and seminal civil liberty, civil rights fights of the 1960s,
1: 70s. Right. Well it was it was a challenge for everybody who was uh, doing that work. It was difficult in Congress where the numbers were so few, right? The numbers of people of color generally men and men and women. Uh, the numbers of women overall were few. There were only ten other women in the House of Representatives when she first uh, took office. So there you know there was a sense of struggling alone and uh, a sense of sort of bucking up against opposition every time you opened your mouth, basically, either opposition or erasure every every time you opened your mouth. But you know, I think that when When people are in that kind of circumstance, as the trailblazers or the only people allowed into the room, uh, or whatever, they develop a strong sense of uh, accountability to the people outside the room, to the people who put her there. And so she was in constant conversation with movement people, she, you know, liberal groups, white liberal groups, civil rights organizations, uh, women's organizations, and the like. And I think she she took some uh, sort of nourishment from the power of activism to keep issues alive and wanted to do her part to bring them to the policy table where, of course, uh, change at the governmental level could occur. So she,
0: as you mentioned, was elected in 1964, begins in 1965, and this first wave, this first... um, opportunity when she's in Congress for more than a decade uh, is 1965 through 1977. And there's pivotal legislation that we see um, during that time. She comes on at the time when there is the question with regard to the seating of that Mississippi all-white delegation. Um, but there's the 1965 Voting Rights Act, there's Medicaid that comes along, there's Title IX that comes along, there's so much. And, and I want to turn our attention uh, to Title IX, and then I do want to get the backstory about what that was like then, having a mother in Congress. And I'm sure that she had to deal with that kind of duality as well. Um, family and then also helping our nation in one of the, what really could be called the second reconstruction. So if if you could help us understand a bit about her role in Title IX.
1: Uh, well, her, her narrowly defined her role in Title IX was as a member of the Education and Labor Committee, um, which had authorizing authority over, um, questions of educational policy as well as workplace policy and, and union policy and that sort of thing. Um, and as a member of the Education and Labor Committee, she um, was able to have a, a voice on these sorts of questions. From the very beginning, uh, she tried to put issues on the, from the very beginning, meaning the mid-1960s, she tried to put issues on the table about gender socialization in schools and how curricular choices affected uh, the the mainstreaming of girls into certain paths and and things of that sort. But none of those questions were really engaged by the male Congress members at the time. Um, Later in the 60s, towards the end of the 60s, 68, 69, in combination with the ferment outside the halls of Congress among women's organizations and grassroots uh, feminists and women who were just fed up with being kept out um, of the various endeavors that they wished to pursue. Given that interaction, it was more possible to raise issues inside the Congress because members of Congress who were male were hearing about it back in their home districts, right? And so this becomes the moment when for example, the Equal Rights Amendment, which had languished in Congress for 49 years, finally gets a vote. Uh, that happens for the first time in 1970. 1972, it's actually passed through the Congress um, and sent on to the states for consideration. So there, it's a it's a it's a moment of sort of. Um, uh, profound interaction between people outside government and people inside government to try to figure out ways to sort of push the envelope with respect to equality. The specific issue of Title IX, um, how Title IX becomes Title IX, has to do with legislative calculations about which is the appropriate vehicle for enactment of this measure that promises non-discrimination on the basis of sex and gender in educational institutions that receive financial federal financial assistance. There had been talk about trying to squeeze that concept into the Civil Rights Act. There had been talk about freestanding legislation about all programs that receive federal assistance and uh, prohibiting sex discrimination in any of them. Uh, But in the end, the education component lands in the Education Act Amendments of 1972, uh, which is what ushers Title IX into law. I would have to say without too much fanfare and without too much controversy in the moment, as soon as it became law, it was very controversial.
0: So Wendy, I wanna ask you, why was that? When I look at the History and Arts Archive at the United States House of Representatives, they concur and say exactly what you've said, which is that this was pretty much non-controversial at its passage, even though the House and Senate worked for several months to hammer out more than 250 differences, 11 of which dealt specifically with sexual discrimination between their bills.
1: Part of the reason there was uh, limited controversy uh, for original passage of Title IX has to do with the fact that it was the ninth chapter shall we call it, of a very large bill. And the very large bill contained elements that were very controversial to large swaths of both the Democratic and Republican Party having to do with school desegregation, uh, especially with respect to uh, busing as a means of school desegregation. Another big controversy had to do with the invention in this piece of legislation of direct... uh, financial assistance to students in the form of Pell Grants, right? So these things kind of uh, swept away the attention of uh, most members of Congress. There there was debate over Title IX upon initial passage, and there were there was grumbling, and there were pot shots, and there was one victory t- for private colleges that also emerged from the the legislative process, but it just, it did not sort of command the attention that it later would command as opponents kind of gathered their forces. If you look at Richard Nixon's signing statement, he doesn't mention Title IX at all, for example. Mm -hmm. He mentions school busing only Mm -hmm. um, as the thing that the the legislation is about.
0: Well, it's interesting because at that time, it's not really having to deal with what Title IX actually ends up producing, right? Which is uh, so many women on campuses and whatnot. So it's kind of like right. out of sight, out of mind. If you're thinking about what you've always had with so few women, those women kind of get harassment men uh, by default get elevated in our schools and universities. It's on the other side of Title IX, women being able to fight back and go to those schools, populate right. those spaces, and for us to be able to see what we have now, which are you know women comprising uh, half of law schools, um, medical schools, and proliferating across campuses, and in many places making up more than the majority of the student body.
1: Right, and it and it extends beyond the demographics um, of of colleges and universities um, to questions about how how women. Uh, should be treated in those institutions right I mean it it it, it affects uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault policies it affects pregnant and parenting students i mean the The, the umbrella of equality is quite broad, and uh, Title IX proves itself to be over the years an incredibly powerful tool. Um, the only limit of to it being the government that is interpreting its application, mm-hmm. right? So that under uh, Trump, for example, mm-hmm. and Betsy DeVos, we have some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also depends upon individual girl, girl, and women students primarily to mm-hmm. uh, to deploy it, right? If it's deployed, it it becomes a very useful.
0: Well, tool. and how thoughtful to your point, right? This prescient piece of legislation that could predict then uh, what happens. When the shackles of segregation in terms of women and the ability to be able to, and girls to be able to become meaningfully educated and integrate into these spaces, the thoughtfulness about what comes next once they're there and providing protections, right? I mean, is exactly what was needed, exactly what would be needed. (laughs) I mean, because what history has shown us is that yes, when girls and you know women enter, it turns out sexual harassment, sexual assault, discrimination are part of what came next in terms of entering those spaces. And thank goodness there was Title IX to address that, to address those issues.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because what goes on inside an educational institution uh, in terms of discrimination is just as important from the Title IX point of view as what happens at the door to those institutions in terms Mm -hmm. of letting women in in the first place.
0: Wendy, I'm wondering what role you think that Representative Mink's education, she was a lawyer, she graduated from the University of Chicago Law School with a JD, what role that might have played when she was in Congress and how that might have affected how she understood what the possibilities were in terms of advancing civil liberties and civil rights?
1: I think her legal training equipped her as a legislator, as somebody who could sort of read the language of policy and understand its potential and or implications. Um, I think that her legal training also imbued her with a sense that the law, if the law allows people to deploy it, it can make a huge difference in, in people's lives. So that's also part of it. But before she even went to law school, she was locked out of medical school And in a way that was maybe the founding experience for her was being told she couldn't be admitted to medical school because she was female. Now law schools were no better in terms of percentages of female students at at that time that she was applying in the late 1940s, but in a fluke, the University of Chicago let her in, you know, And, um, and so she got that law degree and uh, got a good legal education. And yes, I think she carried it with her uh, into Congress.
0: Representative Mink was in Congress during a time in which married women couldn't even have access to credit cards in their own name, a time in which educated women were told they were supposed to be at home only in service of their husband and their children. So turning this to something that's a bit more personal, what was that like for the family for you, for your father, for Representative Mink, in balancing all of those messages?
1: Her immediate family was my father and, and me, and we moved to Washington with her. Um, that was sort of a foregone uh, decision because Hawaii was just too far to manage a commuter kind of uh, parenting relationship for her. And she was not going to surrender her uh, nurturing role with respect to me. So we all moved to DC. I was, you know, it could have, it would have been different if I was wired differently. But I was very excited to move to Washington, and I was very interested in politics. And I was, you know, a, her first fan, uh, and so forth. So there was a, a way in which family life was very integrated with her political life and with her. uh...
0: Wendy I want to pause on that because that's very beautiful just hearing about how inspired you were by your mother how much you were in her corner how much you championed her there's something very beautiful uplifting about that relationship between a daughter and her mom so thank you so much for sharing that on each episode and these go by way too quickly we ask our guests about a silver lining You've shared a really inspiring and impactful story today about uh, Representative Patsy Mink's role in our democracy, Title IX, and there's so much more. We could do another episode just on the various uh, pieces of legislation that she played a critical role with it. Her advocacy really mattered, and we turn to this time on our episodes where we ask about a silver lining, and there's so much that's daunting for so many people today. There are studies that show that the United States is a backsliding democracy. We've seen the dismantling of reproductive health rights and justice in places like Texas, but that not alone. There are dozens of states that are set to enact trigger laws that would deny access to reproductive rights, and as well, we see voter suppression. All of these were matters in which your mother fought against. She was a champion for civil liberties, civil rights, a champion for women, a champion for voting rights. So what's the message in terms of a silver lining at a time in which people are experiencing despair?
1: Well, I think um, the lesson I draw from her, which in a way is a silver lining, is um the way she navigated through the 1990s in Congress, actually. I mean, there's a lot to celebrate in the 60s and early 70s because there's a lot by way of achievement. In the 1990s, there's much less achievement because we were under a very rigid neoliberal paradigm. It was Reagan's America, even though the Democrats were in the majority and a Democrat was president for um, most of that decade. So it was kind of dark times in terms of social programs, in terms of uh, poverty relief and uh, ending impoverishment of of low income families, uh, in terms of pursuit of uh, uh, the idea of universal health care. All of those sorts of things that were part of her core set of beliefs um, were in a way unattainable, but she never gave up the fight. Um, She thought it was extremely important, even if you knew that you couldn't cobble together all the votes you needed to get single-payer health care, it was very important to make the argument, to have a record of the argument that people could turn to the next day when the argument was re-engaged. And so she did that on on multiple issues like that, whether it was affirmative action or single-payer health care or welfare reform where she wanted to, to uh, turn the whole initiative towards welfare reform into a policy for uh, actually supporting low-income mothers rather than disciplining and punishing them, which is what the regime had called for. So you know, she fought those fights and that created a record and it's, it's not her record, it's a, it's a record of resistance and activism that helps to propel us forward in the new era. Now, she could not have foreseen anything as desperate and and dire as what we're going through now. But I hope that the lessons of of, uh, resilience and fearlessness and imagination that were central to her life are ones that can give us hope uh, moving forward.
0: Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin as part of our 15 Minutes of Feminism platform. I want to thank our very special guest, Wendy Mink, for joining us today and being part of this very critical and insightful conversation. And to you, our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and you know, telling it just like it is. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. And for more information about what we discussed today... Head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcast, Stitcher, We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring that hard-hitting content that you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show, and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates, and if you want to reach us. To recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zall, Oliver Hogg, and scene Alisa Boni. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Kyle Good, music by Chris J. Lee and social media assistant from Loony Sound.